You're listening to the Slavic Connection ACAC 2019 San Francisco. Hello listeners, this is the Slavic Connection. The following interview with Dr. James Fellock was recorded at the 2019 ACES conference. Dr. Fellock is a professor of history at the University of Washington, and his research interests are in the intersection of religion, communism, and nationalism in 20th century, Central, and Eastern Europe. This was one of my favorite conversations during that trip, so sit back, have a listen, and enjoy. Okay, so I'm, I'm from western Pennsylvania, from a what's now a depressed steel town. Sure. And a lot of the, like my own family, a lot of the, most of the people there, I think, actually came over from Eastern and Southern Europe around, you know, 1900 or so, the first maybe decade of the 20th century. So I grew up in that milieu of sort of immigrant East European culture. So I was always sort of interested in my ancestors. But what, what got me really interested was um, in the 70s, I was active in Amnesty International and they had, you know, adopted prisoners from some of those countries and there'd be human rights campaigns about uh, people in countries like that. And I did some more background research on those things. And then I also had a, um, the events in the world were, were starting to take off. Like in the seventies there was, uh, and then in 1980, the uh, solidarity movement in Poland. And so I, I got really excited about this kind of stuff and they, and they elected a Polish Pope, which was really unprecedented. So uh, that turned my attention to the region. And then I, when I went back to complete my bachelor's degree, I did it in East European studies at University of Washington. And then I went on to Indiana University for my MA and PhD. Okay, great. Um, and then you study the intersection of religion, communism, and nationalism. What was it that drew you to the intersection of religion with communism? That's not something I think about a lot. Oh, okay. So I started out with, my first book was on Slovak nationalism in the 1930s. And that was closely tied in with Catholicism. The, the Nationalist Party was also the, the major Catholic party. So I did my, my research on, on that, which was a sensitive topic under the communists. Right. And then as I, um, then my, my next book was on right after World War II. The, the, and then I, I brought in, it was the Catholics and the communists came into the picture now because they're, they're not just a small opposition party. Now they're actually the force that's in the process of taking over. So I looked at that period of how the, the Catholics and also Lutherans dealt with the communists in the three years before the country was, was totally taken over. So it was like, it's called after Hitler, after Hitler before Stalin, because the Nazis had just gotten driven out in 45 and the Soviets took control in 48. So I looked at that, that sort of three years and those interactions between the communists and the Catholics was there. And because you learn really interesting things, like for example, the communists thought Slovak Catholics would vote for communists rather than, first of all, they outlawed the Catholic party after the war. So the uh, Slovak communists thought that Catholics would actually vote for communists before they would vote for Protestants. And so they have, there's this whole wooing of Catholic intellectuals to try to get them. They have uh, found uh, some priests that were pro-communists that would write articles in the communist newspapers. And so all of, all of that uh, was kind of new to me and I got very interested. And then when I was doing my, looking for a, th a topic for a third book, which there's a lot of reasons why I, I went that way, but, but the Pope being from a communist country and going back to visit it three times under the, you know, in the late Cold War period, right. uh, seemed, it was very uh, interesting to me. Right. So this is Pope John Paul II. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you said, I, I attended your talk yesterday, and you oh, said okay. that he went to four times, mm -hmm. once every four years. The, the, he went about uh, eight times, but okay. through the 90s into the early 2000s, he makes uh, other visits. But these were like Understood. the four big ones and the ones that were the most dramatic in a lot of ways. Okay. And the paper you're presenting on focuses on the most, uh, the first visit after the end of communism. Right. 
and sort of the language he uses during his sermons. And well, I thought that was pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, I looked at a number of things. I, I got it. It's, it's a weird way I got into this topic because I'm moving, you know, moving for it's, it's really um, not that easy to move from one country to another in your research because right. it takes forever to learn the con context of a country and where it's coming from historically and, and uh, where all the sources are and who all the key figures are in, in historiography and so on. And then I, I kind of jumped into Poland and I, I got into Poland because I was actually invited to a conference in Warsaw connected with my research on the Slovaks. Okay. And when I was over there, I, I bought a big book of Pope John Paul's speeches uh, and homilies on all of those trips published. And it was not the, it was the actual transcripts. It wasn't just, you know, the official documents, but it was what he's literally saying that somebody, you know, recorded and wrote out. And I, I was intrigued by that. And I was looking for a new research topic. I, I, have, a, uh, I have four kids and one of them's mentally handicapped and needed like, you know, like 24-hour care practice. Or, you know, you gotta, somebody's always got to be home with him, got to be with him, right. he's out of doors and on and on. So the chance of going on like a long research trip were, was like, nil. So I thought I need I need a topic about something that's so famous that like sources are going to be available in the West and something where I can just get like a book of like these homilies and analyze it all. <laughs> and so my my and then um eventually our son got a, a group um a group home to live in hmm. and um or you know assigned to a group home and then I, I had the opportunity so I, I so first I just went through all those those speeches and I analyzed it and I, I looked for certain the first thing I, I was going to do the project on what always intrigued me about Pope John Paul was he's he's a, a a patriotic Pole, but he likes Germans, he likes Jews, he likes Ukrainians, he likes uh, uh, even Russians. He has you know positive a positive approach toward them, and those are groups the Poles have traditionally had uh, problematic relationships with. Right. So I was wondering, you know, how does he maintain his credibility as a as a patriotic Pole, but still like kind of build bridges to these other groups with which Poles uh, have had problems? And so I started analyzing uh, his speeches for this. And then I started realizing that, that the actual the pilgrimages themselves were, were important enough as a topic because it also brings another, like, what's he saying about how's he dealing with the communists? How's he playing that sort of cat and mouse game with them? How's he, um, how does he talk about uh, what, kind of his vision for how Poland should be? What's he thinks wrong with Poland? How does he use history? That's a big part of it. How does he use history and the saints and the figures of Polish past to make uh, um, you know, politi political points in the present? He did that. It's very rich. Uh, uh, he did it really, really well. And so I was analyzing that as well. And then, and then a few other, other what's he think of Europe, Poland's place in Europe, Poland between East and West, and right. uh, on and on. So I found lots and lots of material. So then I got, I, I got it all kind of analyzed and written up. And then one of my graduate students um, said, you know, now that you know, your, your son, you don't have to watch your son all the time, why don't you go over there and get the communist documents? And I said, yeah, that's a really good idea. It would be like a whole, be like writing a whole other book, really. But I went over and I went thanks to, you know, digital cameras and all that. And in about six weeks, I got uh, tons of documents. The communists were watching him really closely. There were, uh, you know, his, uh, one of his visits, 170 page report just on, you know, what he did, where he went, what we like about him, what we don't like about him. And so I, I brought all of that in and made it into almost this kind of like a, uh, not a dialogue so much, but like a, just a back and forth between the communist and the Pope. And really? then, um, and then. Uh, with that all finished, when, when the readers, I had four readers go through it uh, as at the pub, for, from my publisher to um, see, you know, what they would suggest to change or add or whatever. And then they said, bring in the voice of the opposition. So these are the people like, like Lech Wałęsa and the KOR, and, uh, they were the workers' rights group, groups that were, because um, they're, not, they're not really the church. You know, they're against the government, but they're not really part of the church. Like, you know, like they said, I, um, oh, it's, it's going to be in the panel t today I'm going to comment on that. 
the church and the opposition are two separate things. Even if the church is opposed to the regime, they're different from the, the secular opposition, right. who are oftentimes activists, <laughs> uh, oftentimes not religious. And so I, I brought in those opposition voices, and so everybody's talking now in the book, so I'm, I'm happy. Wow, that's, uh, yeah. it almost sounds like the setup to a, to a bad joke. The Pope, some Danzig <laughs> ship workers, right. and the communists walk into a bar. That's right, yeah. Um, so what did you find the Pope was most concerned with in the transitionary period for Poland? What was the Catholic Church's opinion on that tumultuous time period? Okay, his, um, if you're talking about kind of the, the late part of the book, you know, like the, the late 80s, early 90s, his his real concern is you know he he wasn't real opti- I mean I don't think he wasn't optimistic he was very he was worried about Poland's future because he thought once they have freedom they're gonna um, muck it all up and and he would you know talk about how you know they we did the, in the past we had freedom in the uh, the golden freedoms of the you know 17th century and we ended up getting partition because we we abused the freedom and then when we got independence after World War One. Uh, again, there was abuse of freedom, and he's afraid Poland's going to become just like the West. He didn't like the um, the sexual libertinism of the West. He didn't like the um, the fact that he, he saw the West as like um, kind of like capitalist countries that the, where the poor don't get a, a fair deal, and uh, people are obsessed with consumer values. He's worried that Poles are going to start moving to the West. You know, the ones that are uh, you know ambitious and and want to have better lives materially. Uh, he's he's very concerned about this. Or still in the '80s, it's like in '87 he sort of sees the end coming, and he's already talking about like. And the thing about freedom is, one, once you have um, elections and multi-party system, then you're responsible for any decisions you make that are wrong or bad. You can't blame them on Soviet Union or the communist anymore. Right. So it's kind of like now our fate is in our hands. What are we going to do with this? And are we going to simply just become like the West, uh, you know, Western Europe? Or are we going to do, have some kind of a Pol- Polish approach that incorporates, you know, Catholic teaching? It sounds pretty critical of Poland in a way. It was critical. Oh, yeah. It was um, he, when he goes in 91, he, he structured the visit after the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know, this is every day. It's, this, is the thing, this is how Poles are breaking these commandments. This is, you know, what you need to do to, to, to stay on track. So, yeah. And, and people expected he was just going to celebrate the Holocaust. Right. And, and there was a lot of disappointment. In fact, almost every biography of him says that was a big mistake. He wasn't resonating with the crowds. And I cut the other way and say that th- this shows that he's really, um, he's more like, like he's prophetic. He's, he's like this character that will just speak out for what he believes in, regardless of what people think. He'll tell you what he thinks you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And so it kind of shows he's not just, he's not in it for a popularity contest. Because the communists would always say, he's, you know, he just wants to be popular and he'll come and say all these things and get all the cheers from the crowds. Uh, but here, he, he really didn't seem concerned whether the crowd cheered him or not. He was, he was just going to tell them. And he gets angry even. I start yelling at one point. I have it all on audios. He says that uh, Western Europe was saying, Poland needs to earn its place in the, in the EU and earn its place in, in Europe. And he's just like, we've earned our place with a thousand years of fighting and dying for the West. And, and who are these self-appointed arbiters of Europeanness telling us whether we belong in Europe or not? And th- then he kind of apologized for getting too angry. But, but that, that whole sense that like, you know, Western Europe shouldn't decide what is European. And Pope even thinks Europe goes, he'd say, from the Atlantic to the Urals. So he, he's including Russia in Europe, which a lot of uh, Poles don't do. No, a lot of Europeans don't consider right. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's no, it. He's, it's all one big uh, unified civilization. So he wasn't concerned with the popularity contest, but was right. it popular? How did they react to being scolded by their Pope? If there wasn't, well, in, in 91, there was not the sort of uh, outburst of applause of the earlier visits so much. Mm-hmm. And they would applause every, like, when he spoke about, 
people um, getting rich at the expense of others in Poland. That, that got a big, big applause. Like th those kind of, you could tell that that was on people's mind now, is that in the transition, some people were getting rich, and oftentimes the ex-communists at the expense of the common people. Right. And that, that resonated with, with people. So, so things like that would, would crisscross. But otherwise, people, they weren't booing or anything. I mean, they just kind of listened and, and once in a while would applaud something. But it was generally like, like uh, more kind of a passive audience. Whereas in the, in the earlier visits, he has to keep telling them to be quiet. They're singing songs. They're, they're, they're praising him and cheering and chanting his name and all of this. And, and in 91, it was, like, it was less sort of festive. Yeah. Well, I guess not reacting is the closest to booing you can get. So who's going to boo the Pope? I right? guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I wonder why, was it easy for him to visit during the communist period? Because that seems kind of counter to the whole ideology yeah. of the communist That's a great question. That's a great question. So he, um, as soon as he gets elected Pope, he announces that he'd like to make a visit, and the Polish church invites him, and it's up to the government. And... They, technically, he's a citizen, so I guess according to international law, he can go visit his home country. But the communists still have to approve, like, you know, where your events are going to be, and you need, you know, you need permission to have a million people in the town square and all of this, right? So, so they, they have to work this out with the church. And the, so we know now, because the, the communist leaders, his memoirs, um, that the Soviet Union, uh, Brezhnev, was, was, thought this was a stupid idea. Like, what are you doing? This is not, this is stupid. Letting like, the Pope in like this? Oh, yeah. And the... Uh, Polish leader Gierek is saying, you know, that this isn't Russia. You guys have, you know, tight control on your church. We, we, Poland, it's, the church is just so big, so powerful, so many people support it that we, we, we just, it would be worse for us to not let him come than to, than to let him come. Right. But one of the things, this is what makes my, my, I think my book interesting, at least especially in the early chapters, is the communists are kind of under instruction. You know, the people that analyze these visits and report on the visits, journalists, uh, so on, to... Um, they have to show that this was not a stupid idea. So they've got to say, oh, John Paul's coming was really good for the Communist Party. It showed the whole world how we have good relations with the church. The Pope tells people to work hard and not be uh, abuse alcohol. And the Pope is defending our borders against Germany and on and on. So they, they, they have to kind of find all these things they like about him. And then in their newspaper articles, it's just about what a success this was, how wonderful this was, everybody was well-behaved, blah, blah, blah. But privately, they're like saying, we're mad about this, we're mad about this, we're mad about this. But they don't want to make that um, so overtly public because then the, not just the Soviet Union, but their neighbors and then hardliners in their own party would say, why did you invite him? This was stupid. Right, because there seem like such stark ideological contrasts between communism and Catholicism. Well, this is interesting. I'm going to make this point today in my comments on another panel. Um, there's, there's this, um, some of the analysts that were writing about these visits, I, um, I'm going to quote one of them. He's saying how we communists should realize that the, the Catholic Church is not the West, that they're separate, you know, whatever, concepts. And the church isn't just part of like the Western reactionary world. It has its own policies and its own positions. And then also, he said that anti-clericalism is a 19th century bourgeois ideology. It's like he starts, he starts like, like giving his opinion in the middle of an analysis. Like this, this analyst, he's saying, right. he or she, we don't know. It's just a, a no, no name. It's just a, a report in their files. But uh, for the, it's for the government um, saying that, that the, um, the, there's this um, that the po when when uh, um, Catholics lose their faith in Poland, 
they don't become Marxists. They become cynics and indifferent to the common good and just concerned only about themselves and that we shouldn't really, we wel welcome this, this loss of faith uh, so eagerly. So this, this, this kind of a question, there, there seems to be this like, you know, the, 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 the church believes in something and when people abandon the church, they end up believing in nothing. And that's what this communist analyst is saying. And so maybe we, that's not such a good thing. Interesting. So it was really amazing to find those kind of things, like you know that you know it's not in the public view, but it's it's there in, in the analysis. Right. And is there any reverse of that? I mean, not to say that the Catholic Church is a very will change our message depending mm. on where we are organization, mm. but do they have any way? Does does John Paul phrase anything differently when he's in Poland, or does he kind of adapt his message to a communist Polish? audience well, he, he he certain things he, he makes sure he doesn't say like you can't just overtly start attacking the soviet union right. in one of these visits and he also doesn't want to say something that's going to get people riled up and have like a revolt the, the church's huge role during all of this stuff was to keep people calm it's like push for reform and calm down the population so he, he'd end the events by telling everybody go home in a prayerful spirit don't disrupt the the positive feelings that we have. And he'd kind of tell the police sort of the same thing. And so this idea that, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to really, really rock the boat. And sometimes things were getting, he had a sense when he was in Krakow in, Krakow in 79 that the, he had an event for youth. And he had a sense that things might get out of hand. And he was going to give them the same message he gave in Mexico. He said a lot more, oftentimes more provocative things in Mexico, which was a trip a few months earlier than in Poland. So a lot of his talk about workers' rights, he said, in Mexico or to Mexicans. And so he had, he had a speech he gave to Mexican youth about youth need to take, you know, uh, take risks and fight for change and all of this stuff. And, and he, he decides not to give that in Poland. He, he just kind of, he kind of tacks on a little bit of it at the end, but he just starts telling stories about being a student in college days and growing up in, around Krakow area. And uh, because there was a sense that like tensions were sort of building, that the regime had a lot of forces on the outskirts of town and that he didn't want to see some kind of a, of a, a erupt. Neither did the regime. I mean, really, it, it's the communists don't want to see any kind of trouble. They, they're in trouble with Moscow and if they can't manage the situation. So, right. so, but he knew not to like, and he, he kind of knew how far he could go, how far he could push, when he needed to step back, when he needed to step to the side. Like sometimes he would, they wouldn't like something he was doing and sometimes he would just, just come back at him. Sometimes he would, he would pull back. And sometimes he would, he would just kind of change the subject and come at him in a different way. They were really worried when he went to Auschwitz in 79 that he was going to make a, a, a pitch for German-Polish reconciliation and that he was not going to thank the Soviet Union for liberation. And so he actually, he was going to go to a, there's, there's plaques at Birkenau, which is the next Auschwitz. And, and there's a plaque for about 23 or 24 different, um, in different languages of victims of Holocaust. And there's one in Hebrew and one in Polish one in Russian. And Pope's plan was to say a few words in front of the Hebrew one uh, about, you know, the Jews having the worst fate of all, and then in front of the Polish one, and the government really wanted him to say something in front of the, the Russian one. So he added that, like, kind of at the last minute. It's not in the official transcript. It's in, uh, it's in the, or it's in the transcript. It's not in the official uh, program. And then he says something. It's real subtle, real understated, like, you know, we know what sort of people uh, made this contribution, and he calls them the Russian nation, not not the Soviet nation. Interesting, which is interesting too. But when I think when it gets translated in, into the official report, they change it to Soviet. But but what he really says is he says the Russian. We know that you know, the Russian nation and what this this nation did uh, in the fight against you know fascism or whatever, um, or for libera I think for liberation of Europe or something like that. So so you know he he, he recognizes that you know that like the Nazis were worse than the, than the Soviet Union. He's right. not like kind of totally equating them.
And so the documents you're working with, are these largely provided by the church archives? No, How do I, didn't, you access? I didn't have church archives. So I, I have, because, you know, the, the communists, they, their regime fell. So all this stuff got opened up. That, that's why this is so unusual, because historians usually work with articles that are 40, 50 years old, and you can't, a lot of them you can never see, you know. And these are like, you know, all their political and party records and police documents and all of that. And they just got opened up um, with the fall of communism. So I used three, three kinds of, of documents. The um, Communist Party, Central Committee had its own researchers. Then the government, the Office of Religious Affairs had its own researchers. And then the police had their own, like, like the police are more like how many people were at the rally, how many people behave, how many crimes were committed, blah, 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 blah. Crimes always went way down during the papal visits except for illegal sale of religious materials <laughs> and, uh, like, pickpocketing, I think, went up. Interesting. Wow. Um, and so this is all going to be in your book, which is coming it's out? It's all done. Yeah, just the, it's in production. So the press is uh, University of Pittsburgh Press. And so sometime in 2020, it should come out. Okay, great. Well, we look forward to it. Thank Dr. Felick, thank you very much for coming on. It was an honor to have you, especially since I understand you have a connection to UT's crease department. Yeah, yeah. Our fearless leader. Uh-huh. Yeah. one of your former students. Former student at our program in, uh, in Balkan history, as, Great. as you probably know. Well, yeah, thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we are here with Katarzyna, who is an assistant professor of cultural studies in the Department of Gender Studies at Charles University in Prague. She's also affiliated with U Illinois at Chicago's Department of Diversity and Human Development and the European Association for Gender Research, Education, and Documentation. <laughs> Katarzyna, welcome to the Slavic Connection. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, so your work is largely within the realm of crypt theory mm -hmm. and gender studies. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about crypt theory generally. Okay, thank you. Uh, so my work is situated in the intersections of uh, crypt theory, queer theory, and gender, gender studies and, and race. So that is also why... I am thinking about disability through the lenses of crypt theory that allows, I think one of one of this really beautiful things about uh, crypt theory is that it's sort of a cousin to queer theory, therefore uh, trying to make us think about disability in ways that would not be um, understandable at first sight or would not be visible are not necessarily the sort of um, thinking through disability via ident identification categories, um, but is allowing us to think about crypt theory in more complicated ways. Similarly to queer theory, crypt theory also allows us to use disability as a critical lens in a way that is not necessarily always linked to uh, identity, a category, and identification, and also allows us, therefore, to think disability in relation to space, uh, to time, to relationships, to um, other forms of social orientations and organization that we do not necessarily always realize are related to disability, health, or fitness, capacities. So in some ways, um, queer and crip theories allow us to analytically think about categories that we tend to think only as um, 
markers of individual subjectivity in new ways and also politicize them differently, therefore. Wonderful. And in relation to space, how do you tie this into post-socialist Eastern Europe? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, as you might know, I've just finished the, uh, the manuscript that is looking at the, exactly at that, is looking at how um, the narratives of Eastern and space of Eastern and Central Europe actually allow us to explore crypt theory in different ways. And um, so I am, the, the manuscript is called, uh, for now, Rehabilitative post-socialism, uh, disability, race, uh, sexuality, and the limits of national belonging. And I am using the intersectional lenses of crypt theory to rethink the ways that we are looking at both Eastern Europe, but also how we are understanding the uh, the last decades of the development of uh, Eastern Europe and, and Central Europe. That is the sort of post-socialism. So post-socialism is very often understood as either only related to this era studies of Eastern Europe, right? Is or and or as a sort of time condition that we will eventually go out of and overcome and become the civilized Western subject. And this is where crypt theory comes in, because uh, the crypt theory allows me to uh, critique and think about how this sort of narrative of or expectation of the condition, overcoming the condition of post-socialism is uh, built on um, some forms of ideology of cure, um, rehabilitation as a cure, rehabilitation in the sense that you are expected to regain capacities that you have lost. So in um, when thinking about post-socialism through crypt theory, for one, you uh, it allows you to like understand that this narrative of transition, transformation, catching up, um, bridging over the leg behind, uh, these are these are all narratives that are built upon the discourses of health. Uh, as I said, rehabilitation, and then so from there you can think about how these narratives of expected regain of health and rehabilitation have conditioned uh, what we understand as the social, what we understand as the political, what we understand as democracy and um, and freedom, for instance. So being, as I said, trained also in queer theory and crypt theory and I'm partly historian, I am looking at unexpected and ambiguousness and paradoxes. And one of the biggest paradox that uh, I think I am able to excavate differently precisely because using critical disability studies and uh, crypt theory is to the sort of paradox that the the transition that was supposed to bring freedom and prosperity, economic prosperity, but also political, uh, but also sort of social prosperity, in fact, and this sort of reliance on this positive narrative of overcoming and cure allowed in the Eastern European spaces, and I'm looking specifically at Czech, Czech, Repu Czech Republic, allowed, in fact, creation of forms of abandonment and uh, exclusions and uh, prohibited for a long time narratives of critique and narratives of um, critical exploration of what actually is happening in the sort of 
long 90s, say. So in this sense, I have, I have, the book has started with a short article that I have written for a journal of literary and cultural uh, disability studies. And I was looking at how forms of disability critique that I have seen develop elsewhere were not happening on grounds in the Czech context. And the question was why? How is it that what specific, what is so specific about the post-socialist condition or the post-socialist affect the post-socialist narratives and understanding of of us that in fact prohibit prohibit make more or if not inhibit completely because you can never do that but why why was it more complicated to arrive at the at the moment of critical understanding of disability disability as an analytic and also as a sort of ground from which you can uh have a critical understanding of social structures and um, and mechanisms of inclusion and exclusion. So that's how it all started. Great. And then as you're exploring the conditions that are causing the inability for those uh-huh. forms of analy- uh-huh. analysis to take uh-huh. hold, what are you finding? I, I am finding that one of the reasons why it was so difficult to create a critical understanding of uh, disability, but also gender and um, and sexuality, etc., the disability is not only the only space their uh, critical understanding and exploration was difficult, it's precisely the reliance on the narrative of rehabilitation. So when you look Interestingly, when I was looking at the archival sources uh, and I went into the journals of disability activism that some of them survived uh, and went through the state socialist period, some of them were founded new in the 90s, all of these uh, platforms have, have seemed to agree on that in the early 90s. Now, we cannot, in fact, articulate our own emancipation and um the word demands at the state we actually the advocacy has to wait so now we are all together we are all creating as if Hannah Havelkova the, the Czech so, uh, sociologist has come up with the notion of universal citizenship and is looking at how it actually stopped or del- sort of complicated the space for critical gender uh, demands similarly people with disabilities were saying well this is not a time to raise our specific demands against the state or for the state. We cannot advocate for our own access. Right now we have to wait till we have sort of like recovered from state socialism and we have overcome this herd, the bad past. And when the bad past is overcome, we then can ask for what we need. Of course, the overcoming is lasting forever. It is a very expensive, expensive uh, time frame and, and that so that also means that um, people with disabilities still live in so uh, sort of sex, social exclusions have economic precarity and uh, you have seen last year the big protest of uh, Polish people with disabilities at the Polish same we did not have or people in, in Bulgaria, people with disabilities were uh, protesting against economic precarity and, and power, the utmost power that they live in but you did not, surprisingly, again, you did not sound such a big uh, mobilization in the, in the Czech Republic last year. Great. Um, and then 
So that kind of, would that tie more into the rehabilitative citizenship concept mm -hmm. that you've mm -hmm. talked about yeah. in some of your papers? Yeah, and uh, also why I, why I am trying to work and I'm working with crypto theory is also because it allows me, I believe, to have a critical understanding of how transnational exchanges of uh, some form of epistemologies are also favoring only certain understanding of disability. So I also do some research on state socialism and I, and I was really, and I love these moments when you are starting a new project and it shocks you and it sort of like totally blows your preconceptions away. So when you go into the sources in, uh, in state socialism, you actually, even 60s, 50, late 50s, 60s, you actually see that, of course, it's expert and it's very patronizing discourses, but they do develop an, a sort of understanding of a division between physical impairment and social socially produced uh, barriers. Similarly, that, that is, in fact, the sort of basic parameters of what we understand as social model of a disability, which uh, in, in the sort of post-socialist context, we have forgotten that there is a tradition uh, in land that is seen as tainted because it's partly um, linked to the, uh, the defectology and its Soviet impact and, and genealogies. So in the 90s, uh, a new form of epistemology has been brought in from the West that is uh, has been very helpful in certain ways, but in certain ways, it sort of blocked more extensive understanding of disability. So uh, sex workers, um, people with HIV, uh, people who are addicted to substances or use substances, um, exhaustion, especially forms of disability in racialized communities, they do not necessarily always figure in disability activism or in how in the sort of dominant uh, understanding of disability. And I think there is something to say about how it's also linked to the export of disability epistemologies that were brought in uh, by external transnational actors uh, in the early 90s. So I think partly why I work with crypt theory and what uh, crypt theory allows me is to push those understanding of disability and try to make them more expensive that they would also include uh, disabilities and abilities that are linked to economic precarity, that are linked to um, exclusion, linked to race and ethnicity, etc. Great. Well, I'm excited to read the book when it finally comes out. Do you have a time frame for when we can be looking for it? We are negotiating contract, but I think in the next year or in year and a half it will be out. Okay, great. That's very exciting. And um, do you have any other work that you're working on that you'd like to discuss quickly? I am also, thank you for the questions and for for the prompts. Uh, I am I am uh, working on right. a project that is looking at HIV AIDS, uh, again, in the Eastern, Eastern European context. And hopefully, we will, a colleague in mind, we will be starting uh, a new project that is looking at uh, microbiological citizenship. That is how people are living with microbes and other uh, small organisms and how the, uh, we conceive of living next to um, microbes and uh, microscopic organisms and how we are afraid or cultivate the cohabitation and I am really excited to think about how the cohabitation with, with microbes and organisms will allow us to 
further the, uh, the thinking about leaky bodies and, and understand how that would uh, link to crypt theory and how actually we can rethink cripness and what cripness is and disability is and what, what disabled lives uh, mean when we are looking at this cohabitation of uh, non-human animals and uh, specifically microbes. That's fascinating. I look forward to hearing more about it. Um, Katarzyna, thank you very thank you much so for much. coming on thank the show. You. Yeah, I was very uh, happy to be part of the show. Especially as I heard understand you have some connections to UT as well. Yeah, yeah. So. I was an alumni and many of my uh, great colleagues are working there. Uh, Alison Kafer, Julia Munich, uh, Munich are both uh, faculty at UT. It was great to have you on. Thank you. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, 